I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we want everybody to be able to follow along. We're going to be looking at a lengthy passage in Acts 17, so you'll want to have your Bible open, and these brothers have some Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you that is marked at Acts chapter 17 for your convenience. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you, because we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Acts chapter 17. We're blessed to live in a free country in which we can gather, like we are today, free of the fear of governmental interference with our message. And that's made possible because of the freedoms our Constitution guarantees that have created a pluralistic society in which everyone has a right to express his views. I, therefore, consider pluralism to be a good thing. But as I've said before, unfortunately, pluralism has degenerated into relativism. Pluralism says that every person has a right to express their view of truth. Relativism says all expressed views are equally true. And this has resulted in the belief that there's no such thing as absolute truth. The late academician Alan Bloom, who taught at Yale and the University of Chicago, among other universities in his career, wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And in it, he said, if a professor in our universities today were to challenge the idea that truth is relative, his students who've been immersed in this during their high school years will look at him bewildered, as if he were questioning the proposition 2 plus 2 equals 4. By the way, a statement of absolute truth. Now, in a culture like that, in a culture like ours, many people take what I call a sort of cafeteria approach to truth. A little of this and a little of that. The best, after all, one can hope for is to attain some portion of truth. But it would be extremely arrogant, most believe, to have a claim to have the truth. But despite the post-Christian culture in which we live, like Christians in every era, we are called to take the truth to our culture as it is. Now, what if there were a model? What if there were a paradigm for taking the truth to a confused culture? We could use that in our personal witness, and we could use it at CBC, as we collectively seek to reach Trenton and beyond. And I believe we have such a model in Acts chapter 17. Now, you probably recall that we're just a few weeks into a series in the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So why is it that we're in the book of Acts today? Well, it's because, as I said in the opening message in this series a few weeks ago, we're doing this series for a couple of reasons. One, it's my desire that the legacy of, of our church in decades to come will be that all who attend Community Bible Church are people who live intentionally biblical lives, lived out of an understanding of a biblical view of the world. And secondly, I said, I want us to see the connection between Christ and the cross and all that comes in the New Testament with the very beginning foundational issues in the opening chapters of the Bible. And so all of that means that as we study passages in Genesis in a given week, the next week we may find ourselves in the New Testament seeing how it's fleshed out in Christian belief and practice. 
Today we're going to see how Genesis 1 lays the foundation for how it is that we present the gospel to a religiously confused culture. Now the setting of Acts chapter 17 is Athens, Greece, the philosophical capital of the ancient world. By the time of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to read in this chapter of a visit by this one Paul to Athens, by the time of Paul, Athens was characterized by turmoil and uncertainty. Failing to find satisfaction in the philosophical schools of Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and the like, Athenians took the cafeteria approach. Men were turning every direction for novel schemes of thought. In fact, note the description given in verse 21 of Acts 17. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, in that environment, one very much like our own, how is the gospel presented? Let's ask the Lord to help us as we see that model in Acts 17. Father, we thank you for the freedom to gather and to speak your truth. Lord, help us to never take that for granted because there are many brothers and sisters throughout your world who do not enjoy that freedom. And so, Lord, help us to preach and to teach and to act while it is called today. And, Lord, help us to be instructed about how it is that we are to share the gospel, though in a free culture, a very confused culture. May we instructed and may we put into practice what we learn. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we supply an outline inserted in your program. We've done that again this week, so I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it already. And I'd like to make three major points in that outline. The first is this. Our procedure, our procedure in giving the gospel is confrontation with the truth. Our procedure is confrontation with the truth. Now, when I say confrontation, that immediately has a negative connotation for many of us. In fact, some will say, I, I hate confrontation. Well, I, don't, I really don't know that many people who like confrontation. If you like confrontation, let's talk. <laughs> Most of us don't like confrontation. But the truth is, confrontation must happen if we care about people that God has placed in our circle of influence both people we know and then people he brings into our circle for us to reach with the gospel. But when I say confrontation, it's, it does not mean to initiate hostilities with a person. It simply means to confront them with the error of their way and present them with the truth of what God says in his word. That can and should be done in a very kind, gracious, Christian way. But confrontation it is nonetheless. And we'll only engage in that confrontation when we see the contrast between truth and error. And that's why I say next in your outline. We'll do this when we understand the cultural expressions of depravity. Understand the cultural expressions of depravity. In what we're going to read in Acts chapter 17 about how Paul presented the gospel... It begins with him waiting in the city of Athens for his associates, Timothy and Silas. And Paul thought, I'm quite certain, that he was going to have a brief respite from his missionary activity, going from one city to another, as he waited for his associates. But as he waited, he had little rest, because here's what verse 16 says. 
he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. One writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The city simply teemed with idols. Visitors to Athens and writers who had been there frequently remarked upon the abundance of religious statues in Athens. According to one, Athens had more idols than all the remainder of Greece combined. In fact, they even had one to the unknown god, according to verse 23, just to make sure they hadn't missed any. And Paul sees this as he waits for Timothy and Silas. And he had a visceral reaction to it. Verse 16 says he was greatly distressed. One translation says his spirit was provoked. Now, the word that's translated distressed or provoked is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, to describe God's anger at Mount Sinai. When I say we must understand, then, the cultural expressions of depravity, I mean we must, like Paul, see them for what they are. Expressions of sinfulness, expressions of depravity are many and they are varied, but the cause is always the same, the sinfulness of humanity. And we are easily lulled into a sense of ease and complacency because we think our culture is not that bad after all. But Paul goes and he sees what Athens is doing and he's distressed, he's provoked. And I ask you, are you distressed and provoked, angered at what you see? Or do you feel quite at home in the sinful culture in which God has called us to minister? Friends, we're surrounded by cults and isms, temples, apostasy, even in the name of Christ and heresy. And all of this amounts to a detraction from the praise of the true and living God. And it ought to provoke us to action as it did the great apostle. And there are not only the overtly religious expressions of idolatry, but there are the unbiblical philosophies that are around us, all of us, every day. The average person's not familiar with the origin of phrases like eat, drink, and be merry, or you only go around once. But these are the modern version of Epicureanism, or consider the stuff happens approach to life. It's nothing more than the current version of a philosophy called Stoicism. Popular music asked blasphemously some years ago, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. It's all around us. And the question is, are we being absorbed by the culture or are we provoked to action by its idolatry, whether in its overt religious forms or otherwise? Materialism, hedonism, humanism. And on the list could go. They're all philosophies that are unconsciously and uncritically pursued by most people every day and without the religious trappings. And if we're not careful, then we absorb that. And we feel at ease with what we watch and hear and read. And the one common feature of all idolatries, no matter their form, is that they exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature. And as a result, our God is robbed of that which is rightfully his exclusive worship. 
So if we individually and personally, and we as Community Bible Church, are going to confront with the truth, we have to understand the culture's expressions of its sinfulness. But secondly, I say in your outline, we will not only need to understand those expressions, but we'll need to contrast cultural assumptions with biblical truth. Contrast cultural assumptions with biblical truth. Verse 17. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Verse 17 starts with the word so, or sometimes translated therefore. Because he saw and he reacted, so, therefore, then he took action. He reasoned. When it says he reasoned, it's not Paul saying, let's compare notes to see if we can teach each other something. As we're going to see, Paul had already determined that they had nothing to offer. He was not there to exchange ideas, but he was there to proclaim truth. Now, this passage is often used as an example of how a Christian finds common ground with unbelievers. (laughs) But these Athenian philosophers did not find common ground with Paul. Note the reaction, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, they didn't find common ground with Paul. They didn't find it satisfactory at all that we had a new guy to to debate with and to discuss issues with. In fact, they call him a a slur when they say, what is this babbler trying to say? It's literally a seed picker. What is this seed picker trying to say? I mean, he's just a seed picker. He's got a little of this. He's got a little of that. They don't understand it, so there's no coherency to it. And so they insult And they say he seems to be advocating foreign gods, plural. And then Luke, who wrote Acts chapter 17, tells us that they said this because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here's what's going on. They hear Jesus talking, or Paul talking about Jesus and about the resurrection. Now, the Greek word for resurrection, we get our word Anastasia from it, which was sometimes a female name. And so they hear Jesus, a male name, and they hear Anastasia, and they say he's got a male God and a female God. So they thought he was advocating these these new gods, one male and one female. And as a result of that, Paul is arrested. Verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. Now, when verse 19 says they took him, it's literally they seized him. They grabbed Paul and said, you're going to have to give an account for what it is you're saying. So this is this is not as we often read this, you know, coffee with Paul at the Areopagus. This is an informal inquiry to determine whether or not formal charges should be brought against Paul. And to gain a feel for the seriousness of this, some of you may recall that the philosopher Socrates was executed in Athens for advocating new strange gods. 
And the Areopagus is sometimes called in some translations, the King James says that they brought him to Mars Hill. Everybody remember reading that Mars Hill? Well, this was the place, the Areopagus or Mars Hill was the place where the officials of the city who were governed in matters of religion and morals would meet. And here Paul is now in hot water with those officials. He's been arrested and asked to give an account for what it is he's saying. Unless we think this is an exception to Paul's pattern, that Paul just happened to catch some guys that were in a bad mood, this was the pattern for him in virtually every city that he visited. He would confront them graciously and lovingly to be sure, but he would confront them with ideas that were contrary to their assumptions. And as a result, it would land him in hot water. It was the case in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth. You simply read through the book of Acts, and that's what you find happening. Now, I mentioned that this episode at Mars Hill is often used as an example of how it is we should minister. It is, if understood rightly. But it's often misunderstood to mean that Paul found the area of common ground with them and he accommodated their ideas. We're going to see that Paul did not accommodate their ideas. He confronted their ideas. There are churches today named after this. Mars Hill Church, Seattle, Washington, gigantic megachurch, or at least it was until last year when it imploded because their pastor, Mark Driscoll, was involved in one scandal too many, and finally it imploded. But Mars Hill Church was based on that sort of notion. Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, where the infamous Rob Bell of Love Wins Infamy was the pastor. Now, why do so many people have an affinity for this idea of Mars Hill? Because they think this is what Paul was doing. When Paul came, he was trying to find ways that he could accommodate what people believed, and that's what we're trying to do when we reach our culture. Well, we've already seen that Paul did not strike a chord very well early on as he was arrested for this informal inquiry. Then we're going to see the very message that he gives to them. It's not an accommodating message. It's a confrontational message. Our procedure, then, is confrontation with the truth. But I say secondly in your outline. Our proclamation is the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ. Now, as we go on in this passage, we're going to see a couple of things. One, I have in your outline, humanity is completely dependent on God. And we're dependent on God for a couple of things. The first is revelation. We're dependent on God for revelation. Now, that word revelation means simply to make known. And so what we're saying here is that we are dependent upon God to make known truth about himself, truth about us, and truth about his world. And Paul says in verse, or the passage says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now let me just stop there. Okay? Win friends and influence people. You know, Paul's finding ways to accommodate them, meet them where they are. Paul says you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul tells them respectfully but directly, you're clueless. 
The reason you don't understand the significance of the resurrection is that every event requires an interpretation of the event. And the proper interpretation of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ is only gained from the standpoint of a biblical worldview. Starting from yourself and attempting to reason your way to God will be futile. You require something outside yourself. The only cure for your ignorance is the truth of Scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I will not reason with you from your worldview. I will proclaim the truth to you. And when it says in verse 23, I will proclaim, that word refers to a solemn declaration made with authority. I will proclaim the true and living God to you, and he will commence doing that in just a moment in verse 24. Now, friends, because we buy into this softer, softer, gentler God, in our softer, gentler, unless you're a Christian, softer, gentler marketplace of ideas in our world, then we get the idea that we just get together and have coffee and we just talk about whether you think Jesus is God or not and whether you think Jesus rose from the, from the grave. And Paul says, I'm going to proclaim that truth to you with solemn authority. And the idea here, Athenians, the idea here, Trentonians, Michiganians, Americans, the idea here is not, will you, ven- will you give a positive verdict regarding God? The issue here, as we're going to see with the Lordship of Christ, is whether God will give a positive verdict regarding you. God's not the one on trial. You are. God is not on trial. His sinful and rebellious world is on trial. We are dependent on God for revelation. You are ignorant, Paul says. I'm going to proclaim the truth to you via that revelation. We're dependent on God for revelation. And secondly, I say in your outline, we're dependent on God for sustenance. Sustenance. We're dependent on God for sustenance because God is our personal creator. He's the Lord of all. Notice verse 24. So here in verse 24 is where Paul now begins to make his formal presentation to them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, do you see his presentation is squarely built upon the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created everything, the heavens and the earth. And now out of that truth flows my presentation Paul's presentation of the gospel. God made the world and everything in it, and he is the Lord of everything he made, and he doesn't need anything. Now, men understand, humanity understands intuitively that the creator is the owner. And that's why the the notion that we are the direct creation of God is so opposed in our day. Because people understand intuitively what that means. The implication of that is God owns me. If God is the one who made everything, including me, that he owns me and he has the right over me. And that is why Henry Morris, creation scientist, was right to say that evolution is the long war against God. Because people understand that the potter does have the right of ownership over the clay. 
the moment you tell somebody, you have been directly and personally created by God. They understand the implications of that. He now owns me. Friends, people will talk God. Sometimes we will talk God. But very often the definition of this God we talk about is not the one that's in the Bible. We like a God, I sometimes say, who is not too much God. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I like a God who's around when I need him. I like a God I can call out to when I'm in trouble. But a God who sovereignly controls everything? Oh, now, wait a minute. This is America, God. I got my rights. We're dependent on God for sustenance because he's the creator. And he, Paul goes on to say, is completely independent of us. He's independent in a couple of ways. He's independent of space. Look at the end of verse 24. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, last week, I gave the illustration of the fact that space itself is, according to scientists, expanding. And scientifically and biblically, space was created from outside, that is, this fancy Latin term, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And I gave this illustration of a a balloon, and if you inflate that balloon and you have buttons on it that are like the the planets, that you will see those, uh, those galaxies and planets expanding as the balloon expands. But part of the point of that illustration was that God is outside of the balloon. And when God created the balloon and space, he didn't create it from within space. He created it from outside of space. He can and enter the and does enter the balloon, but he's not bound by space like we are. He's independent of space and he's independent of his creatures. Look at verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I said last week that we sometimes have the mistaken notion that the reason God created is because God was lonely. God has never been lonely, ever. God has always had fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I gave an example of a, a songwriter who said, you know, God decided he wanted some fellowship, and so he, and so he created when I was in seminary, our theology professor talked about a, an album that had come out when he was in seminary. And this album purported to have the sounds of creation in the background. And he says this album began with a deep voice saying, I'm lonely. That's the voice of God. That's as deep as I can get, guys. And God's saying, I'm lonely. But Paul here is saying, He doesn't need anything, and the truth is that God has never been lonely. Several years ago, when I was uh, working in the computer field, I was sent to Houston for a week for some training. And on the Wednesday of that week, I asked the hotel concierge about Baptist churches in the area. And I found one not very far away, the Second Baptist Church of Houston. And I could walk there. And as I, as I walked there, I saw, on a Wednesday night, mind you, I saw cars pulling in from everywhere into this place. And there were guys out there in the, you know, orange uh, reflector jackets, and they were showing people where to go. And I didn't, is this the church? <laughs> Did I arrive at an amusement park? Where, where? And it's a Wednesday night, mind you. And there are people just, it's the church, and the church goes for a full city block. 
And I just followed the droves of people that were going in, and we went into this uh, this large auditorium, and it was shoulder to shoulder, and I'm sitting next to these people. And the entire service, service, was a comedy presentation. And this is apparently what they do on Wednesday nights at this church. It's very popular, as you uh, could see or you can imagine from all the cars and all the people. But at the end of this comedy presentation, they gave an invitation. And I didn't hear a word of gospel in this thing. But people were invited to come and trust Christ. And the gal next to me broke out weeping. Now, I was weeping, but for different reasons. And the, and the young people who were up front and leading this whole thing sang a song. Now, I've been told by other folks that they know the song or have known the song in the past. But it has these lyrics. There's no one like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search through all eternity and find there's no one else like you. All right, so they sing that. And I'm thinking, we're singing that to God. And there's no one like you, God. And the Bible says that. There's none like me. And indeed, it's true. I could search through all eternity and find there's no one like God because there is none beside him. No one like him. Okay, so far I'm okay. But then uh, the leader of the song group says, did you know that God can sing that to you? Let's all sing it as God would sing it to you. So can you see the God of the universe up there saying, there's no one like you? No one else can touch my heart like you do? I, God, could search through all eternity and find there's no one else like you. Blasphemy, friends. God is independent of his creatures. God does not need his creatures. We are dependent upon God as well. Because according to verse 26, God providentially and sovereignly controls the affairs of humanity. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now it's a bit wordy, but verse 26 is saying this. That a sovereign God determined where you would be born and when you would be born. Now have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered how you wound up where you were born and when? Well, we can all agree that you had nothing to do with it, right? You say, well, my parents, you know, this is what was going on with my parents. I was told the story. And so, okay, your parents. But who positioned your parents where they were? And according to Paul, you take that all the way back, and a sovereign God has providentially arranged the affairs of humanity so that they are where he wants, when he wants them for his purposes. God puts people in places and times to accomplish his purposes. We have many examples of this in Scripture. Here's one of the most famous, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You remember that? That this monarch who thought he was a god challenged the true and living God. And the Bible tells us, alternately, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but then it will sometimes say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the truth is, both of those happened. 
God put Pharaoh in situations in which Pharaoh would freely choose what God ordained. He made Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the clay. God's the potter. He knows exactly what Pharaoh's going to do. And he puts Pharaoh, gives him enough rope to hang himself, if you wish. Humanity is completely dependent on God for revelation and for sustenance. And, in your outline, humanity is completely accountable to God. Completely accountable to God. Now, what are we accountable for? To seek God, first of all. We are accountable to seek God. Verse 27 God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So God has taken the initiative. God has made, as we're going to be reminded in just a moment, God has made truth about himself known so that people would reach out for God and respond to his initiative. But God's verdict is that men are clueless, but they are also culpable because they are willfully ignorant because God has made this truth known to them and they do not respond as he designed in seeking him. Why do I say that? Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, in verse 28, notice that those two phrases, we are his offspring, is in quotation marks. And the first phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, is in quotation marks. Paul is quoting some of their own people. To say that God has reached out to you, God has made himself known to you, but you have failed to reach out to God and seek him as he designed and desires. And the proof that you know him is that some of your own poets have said these things. Now this is Paul saying what he wrote to us in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has made it plain, but what's the reaction of sinful humanity to what God has made plain? Paul goes on in Romans 1, but although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, when it says in that first line, they knew God, here's something you need to to know about that line, they knew God, that phrase. It's literally, they knew the God. The definite article is there in Greek. Although they knew the God, not some vague notion about God, they know that they are the personal creations of this personal creator, but because of sin, the reaction is not to seek him and to serve him but rather to reject him. So, Paul is telling them, you're not only clueless, you are culpable. And this is why showing the impossibility of the contrary is a good way to defend the faith or present the gospel. I mentioned it last week. That you show someone the impossibility of them living without the true and living God. And that's because there is already a mutual understanding that we can begin with, even though the non-Christian suppresses that. You can show him, as Paul does here, that we can't live or move or anything else apart from the basis of a personal creator. It's what Francis Schaeffer called tearing off the roof of the facade and the structure that the unbeliever has built. This summer, as our teens go on that ministry trip, 
they're going to have the privilege of being accompanied on that trip by a Christian apologist who does this very thing. Uh, Cy Ten Bruggenkate is going to accompany our young people for the week, and he's going to minister at Pastor Matt's church down there. And he's going to take this very kind of approach that Paul did at uh, at uh, the Areopagus in Acts chapter seven, Acts chapter seventeen. If you want some information about Psy, you might look at proofthatgodexists.org. Proofthatgodexists.org. I encourage you to do that. Proofthatgodexists.org. Now, friends, we're almost done. Stay with me. But we often get the idea that people are more deprived than depraved. You know what I mean by that? Rather than the problem being sinfulness, it's that people don't have enough information. They're deprived of information. Or that people are somehow neutral, just waiting for new information to render a decision. But the Bible teaches that all humanity has rendered a decision. All humanity has rejected the truth that they have. Truth that should lead them to seek God. But because of sinfulness, it causes men to construct God to their own liking. And so in our foolishness, we create churches that are called seeker churches. Anybody familiar with that? Seeker churches. Yikes. So here's what Romans 3.11 says. There's no one. You guys got that for the screen? Romans 3.11. There is no one who seeks God. So how many people show up at your seeker service? And yet how many people really show up at the seeker service? It's like thousands. So there's a, there's a disconnect here between the truth of what the Bible says and actually what's going on in many of our churches. Believe it or not, there are churches that have chosen to grow the numbers in their ranks by taking a survey within the community and asking people what they would like in a church. You say, you know, did anybody ever take a poll in the Bible? Well, here's the closest thing you're going to get to a poll in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul goes to Corinth and implied in what I'm going to read you in just a moment when he went to Corinth is that Paul understood. He sort of took an informal poll. What do these people want? But notice his reaction to what these people want. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, here's something you need to know about Corinth. That's exactly what they wanted. That's exactly what they specialized in. Greek rhetoric. Greek eloquence, Greek wisdom. They were actually entertained by that. They would actually go and pay money to watch people do that. And Paul says, this is the Brown paraphrase, I took a poll in Corinth. Everybody told me they wanted Greek rhetoric. And when I came to you, I didn't give you what you wanted. Instead, I preached Christ and him crucified. The next verse says, We are accountable to seek God, but men do not. And then we are accountable, lastly, to repent. To repent. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. It says God overlooked means that God was patient. Even though all men are under his wrath because of sinfulness, without excuse, because of natural revelation that God has given, God has been patient. 
Through all time, the Gentiles were responsible for this general revelation given to them. But now, with the worldwide proclamation of the gospel, they're responsible to special revelation as well, centered in Jesus Christ. The response is to obey God's command to repent of their sins. And so the end of verse 30 says, He commands all people everywhere to repent. And a gospel message that is devoid of repentance is not the gospel. Acts chapter 3 says this. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Now you compare verse 30 that says repent to the last verse in Acts chapter 17 verse 34 that says some believed. So the command is to all people everywhere, repent. And then it says some believe. Sometimes people try to separate repentance and faith, repentance and belief. Those cannot be separated. They can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. You cannot repent without believing, and you cannot believe without repenting. And so Paul is saying here, you want to know the meaning of the resurrection? Here's the meaning of the resurrection. Jesus of Nazareth was raised by God the Father to become the judge of sinful humanity. The resurrection vindicated the claims that he made to who he was, and now he has become your judge, verse 31. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This identifies the true and living God that you claim to seek, Athenians. It's this Jesus who said when he walked the earth, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So our procedure is confrontation with the truth. Our proclamation is the lordship of Christ. And then in your outline, lastly, our prospect. What can we expect to happen? Well, that depends on the sovereign grace of God. And here's why. Because most people reject the truth. I say in your outline, most people reject the truth. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, when you read that, verse 32, you got the some who sneered. All right, they rejected. But then you got this other group that says, we want to hear more. Are they rejecting? You know what the answer is? Yeah. They're still rejecting. Listen, until someone bows before the lordship of Jesus, they are continuing to reject. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus said in Matthew 7, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. People reject the gospel because our natural sinfulness causes us to do that. And so, where does that leave us? What is our prospect then when God sends us out to preach his word and to reach those that he will move upon to respond? The truth is most people reject the truth. And there are only two ways for a sinner to like our message and thus accept it. Only two. Two ways. Two ways for a sinful person to like our message. The first one is change the message. And that's the popular message today. Water it down. That's one way. That's a bad way. Here's the other way. For the Holy Spirit to change them. 
But the good news is this. Some people will believe, I say in your outline. Thanks be to God, some will believe. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. The Bible tells us that when Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys began preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, the Bible says this, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Some will believe. When Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, after this encounter in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when he went in Acts chapter 18 to the city of Corinth, he did so with what Acts chapter 18 says, calls fear and trembling. But the Lord appeared to him in the next chapter to Paul and said to him this, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And I have many people in this city. Church. Thanks be to God, he has people in Trenton. If God doesn't have people in Trenton, we don't get nobody. If God doesn't have people in Trenton and beyond, our message is completely futile. But here's what he's called us to do. Preach the message, don't water it down, and watch what I do. Because I have people in this city. That's what we will do. And so I say as your take-home truth. Our understanding of the truth, the worldview that we're building as we go through Genesis 1, our understanding of the truth must shape our presentation of the truth. Our understanding of the truth must shape our presentation of the truth. Now, we're going to pray. And dear friend, if you are here and you have not bowed your heart and your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then please understand you're still rejecting Him. And you're not promised this afternoon God owes me nothing. God owes you nothing. But in his grace, he brought you here by divine appointment to hear the truth that the God who made us and owns us has come to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus died and was raised. And as an affirmation that he is all that he claimed to be, he has now become our judge. And God now requires all men and women and children everywhere to repent. And he offers you opportunity to do that now. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. You acknowledge the fact that God the Son died for your sin on the cross. You repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to bow my life before you. I don't know what all that means. I don't know what all you want me to do, but it doesn't matter because you're the Lord. (laughs) So as you tell me, I'll do it. Repent. And then you receive Jesus Christ. How do you do that? When we pray from your heart to God, acknowledge you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sin. Ask him to rescue, deliver, save you, and give your life to him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for the freedom to preach this message. Unpopular, unpopular in the world to be sure, unpopular in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, unpopular throughout church history, 
and even, Lord, unpopular, this message among professing Christians. But we thank you that your word is clear. We thank you that your word is powerful and that your Holy Spirit is active. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of some who have heard this today and know that they are outside of Christ, that they need to bow their life and their heart before him. I ask you to draw them out of the world into yourself as only you can do. My words have no effect. Only your word, Lord, and only your Holy Spirit can do this. For those of us for whom you have done this, we are profoundly thankful with our words and then with our lives. Help us to live and help us to proclaim this gospel that has changed us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.